Sabbath, everyone. Well, today we're going to start a new two-part sermon series, and um, it's entitled, What Adventism Means to Me, The Three Angels' Message. And uh, today I'm going to be talking about understanding the past, understanding the past. And I think it's quite important to understand the historical context where Adventism came into play. And so today is really more of just kind of like a history talk or a history lesson. And I'm just going to be sharing where this church came from. And I think that from that, we'll understand where we are today. And then part two, uh, which I'll be sharing in a couple of weeks time, uh, we'll talk about um, how do we then relate with um, our theology in our church today? How do we relate with the community around us? And so I'm just going to invite you to pray with me as we begin. Father God, um, we just come before you today and um, this church has such a unique message and I just pray that as I uh, share about where we've come from, that it would give us understanding. And uh, as we think about what the implications are for the future, um, I just pray that you would renew that same uh, urgency and that you would renew that same uh, value of your word um, that, the, that the founders of this church had. And I just pray that you would bless this next moment that we have um, and that you would touch our hearts. We pray this in your name. Amen. Now, um, I realize that there are people uh, here who may not be familiar with all the Adventist jargon and all the Adventist, uh, Adventist lingo, and so I'm just going to be sharing from the perspective of someone who uh, may not be familiar with this passage. And so if you're wondering, why is he talking so funny and why is he acting like, uh, why is he referring to Adventists as them? Um, it's because I'm sharing from the perspective of someone who may not be familiar uh, with this, uh, with, with Adventist history. So I'm going to share some historical context of the Seventh-day Adventist Church's message, and not necessarily the Seventh-day Adventist Church, but the Church's message. And I want to just emphasize that, and it'll become clear in a moment why I'm doing that. So between the end of the 18th century and the beginning of the 19th century, there was this awakening of the idea that Jesus was coming a second time in the near future. And the people that believed this were called uh, Adventists, not Seventh-day Adventists in terms of this particular denomination, but Adventists, just people from any denomination that believed in the soon return of Jesus. Here are a few examples. There was a German Calvinist pastor whose name was Johann Petri, and in 1768, he put a connection between the 70-week prophecy of Daniel chapter 9 and the 2300-day prophecy of Daniel chapter 8. And it's in these prophecies, in connection with one another, that Adventists all around the world came to the conclusion that Jesus was going to come again in the near future. And a lot of them projected this date sometime between in the 1840s. Well, he was not the only person who came to this conclusion, but for the sake of time, He's the only person that I'm going to mention at this point in time. Next, there was a gentleman by the name of Manuel de Lucunza. And in the 1790s, Manuel de Lucunza was a Jesuit priest, and he wrote this manuscript called The Coming of the Messiah in Glory and Majesty. And he began to circulate his manuscript in Spain and in um, Spanish America. 
Well, Lukunza had been studying the topic of the second coming for over 20 years, and he believed in a soon return of Christ. And this is significant because back in this time period, a lot of Christians believed that the second coming of Christ was this far distant future. Well, Lakunza took this position that there were two resurrections from the dead, much like the rest of uh, Protestant Christianity. Uh, those two resurrections were separated by this period called the millennium, and his understanding of the second advent placed him in direct opposition to the teachings of the church. And his book was condemned by Pope Leo XII, and Pope Leo forbade its publication. Well, the manuscripts were already being passed around, and uh, basically they, they um, caused quite a bit of a stir in southern Europe and in Latin America. Also in the 1840s, there was a man by the name of Thomas Playford. And uh, apologies for the small picture. I couldn't find anything with better resolution. But he was this pastor from Adelaide, and he was known for his powerful preaching on the second coming. So even here in Australia, this idea was getting circulated in the 1840s. Now, normal churches were not big enough to hold the crowds that came to listen to Thomas Playford. And so his friends actually built him a meeting hall just so he could preach and people could come in here. So we have these records of people around the world writing about this idea that Jesus was returning soon. But there wasn't this unified movement. There weren't people organizing themselves saying, hey, here's this idea that Jesus is coming again. Let's organize ourselves and really um, spread the word. Well, in North America, from 1830 to 1844, there was a unified movement of people who gathered together. They came from the Baptist Church. They came from the Anglican Church. They came from the Presbyterian Church. They came from all over the place. And they, they prepared themselves, or excuse me, they organized themselves for one purpose. Let's share about the fact that Jesus is coming again. They studied Daniel chapter 8 and 9 over and over and over again and came to this conclusion that Jesus would come in 1844 on October 22. And here is a, uh, an example of one of the charts that they used. They printed these charts. They went around to different churches, any, any church that would let these preachers uh, share from the pulpit, and they would kind of go through and work through these different dates to kind of share how the prophecies of Daniel chapter 8 and 9 were relevant to their day right then and there. Here's a more of a chronological breakdown of how that prophecy works. I'm not going to explain everything because, anyway. <laughs> For those of you who would like an explanation of this, there will be a baptism, there's a uh, Bible study class uh, in the next door at the end of church, and uh, you can ask Jinha or myself, and we can break down Daniel chapter 8 and 9 with you then. But just to give you an ex uh, example, this is what was going on. Now, can you imagine how the Adventists felt? They were absolutely convicted Jesus is coming in the next few years. This idea changed their lives. It changed the way that they interacted with their friends, their families, their churches. People literally sold everything that they had and took their money and donated it so that people could print more pamphlets and circulate them. There was this huge revival. Now, this revival caused a lot of conflict in, lo in local churches around North America because many people didn't believe what was being preached and saw it as a destructive, um, a destructive thing to normal life. And it was. It, it really interrupted the normal fabric of life and community. 
um, where this idea was being circulated. So the result was that many people were excommunicated, they were kicked out of their local churches, and the Adventists thought, um, well, when they looked at people who didn't believe them, they kind of saw them as unspiritual people who didn't care about Jesus. And on the other hand, those who didn't believe that, uh, what the Adventists taught, they thought that the Adventists were fanatics. And so they're kind of like, well, you guys are crazy. We don't want to join you. Well, Jesus didn't come back in October 22, 1844. And this left um, the group of Adventists totally despondent and dejected. And this event is often referred to as the Great Disappointment. It was from this movement of Adventism and that moment of disappointment that the Seventh-day Adventist Church was born. Many people left the movement of Adventism. Within Adventism, there were many different, there were several different factions, three main ones. But one of those groups of people restudied the books of Daniel and Revelation and came to the conclusion that Jesus would return again soon, just not in 1844. So here's a summary of the historical context, and I share this for a few reasons. One, I think the history is important because I want you to know that we got a lot of our theology from other churches. Much of the unique Seventh-day Adventist theology that we have did not originate with us. For example, we got the Sabbath from the Baptists, who got it from the Jews. I also want you to know that other churches and people outside of Adventism have similar beliefs as people who are in the Adventist church even today. I want you to know that there was a separation that took place between a lot of the evangelical churches and the Adventists. And this really affected the pioneers of Adventism. And as you read through the literature, you really see it coming out in terms of how they refer to people who are outside of the Seventh-day Adventist church. It created a lot of denominational separation, or there was a, a significant denominational rift. And I highlight, I highlight that because today we don't have that rift, and that changes how we interact with the community around us. So there was this wall of separation. Much of the dialogue that took place between the pioneers of, of the Seventh-day Adventist Church and the surrounding denominations revolved around debate, and there was a lot of debate, literally two people standing in front of a huge crowd, arguing out their theological standpoints. So that feeling of separation and exclusion and rejection is noticeably felt, and you'll see why this influences the church in a moment. So after 1844, the Seventh-day Adventists restudied prophecy to seek an understanding. What did they get wrong? What did they get right? Where did they go to from here? And so they studied the Bible, and it led them to the book of Revelation. And Revelation is this highly prophetic, symbolic book. It's uh, written in a chiastic structure. And what that means is that the first half of the book is mirrored by the second half of the book. So if you look at um, how the book is broken down here, you've got a prologue. And at the end, you've got an epilogue that mirrors the prologue. Um, and then that second... Uh, Section B, uh, there it talks about the church and imperfection, and then here at the uh, second to the last bit of the book of Revelation, the church is in perfection, and so forth and so on. Now, the reason why the chiastic structure is significant, or the chiastic literary structure is significant, is because in normal chronological writing, the most important part of the story is at the end or close to the end of the book. 
Um, so if you think about movies or stories, the climactic part of the story is at the end. It's kind of like, whoa, I can't believe that happened. Um, but when something is written in a chiastic structure, the climactic part of the story happens in the middle, not at the end. And so it communicates to the reader, hey, this part is really, really, really important. And so the climactic part of the book of Revelation happens between the chapters of Revelation chapters 12 and Revelation chapter 14. And what I'm going to do is I'd like us to turn to Revelation chapter 14, and we're going to see what climactic event takes place that so heavily influenced the early Seventh-day Adventists. And from this point in time, I'm just going to refer to Seventh-day Adventists as Adventists. And I realize that's confusing because when we started the talk, Adventists meant something else. Okay, people are nodding, so you know what I'm talking about. I'm just going to get a glass of water. I'm just going to get some water. Revelation chapter 14. For those of you who have not found it yet or have the, um, the World Changer Bibles, uh, it's page 998. Way too many things in my hands right now. Okay, so John, the author of Revelation, is given this vision in Revelation chapter 14 of three angels. And if you want to scan through those um, messages, it's uh, Revelation chapter 14, verses 6 to 12, and then I'm going to jump to verses 14 to 16. So John the Revelator is given this vision of three angels, and as you look through those messages, each angel is given this distinctive message, and the summary of the message, and I'm going to go back in depth and, and break it down a little bit, but um, the summary of those message is, uh, fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment is come. The second message, the second angel has this message, Babylon is fallen, and then the third angel's message basically says, don't receive the mark of the beast. So if you continue on to verses 14 to 16, right after the three angels' message, notice how the text reads. Verse 14, Then I saw a white cloud, and seated on the cloud was someone like the Son of Man. He had a gold crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Then another angel came from the temple and shouted to the one sitting on the cloud, Swing the sickle, for the time of harvest has come. The crop on earth is ripe. So the one sitting on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the whole earth was harvested. So this passage gives us a picture of an event called the second coming. You have one who's sitting on the cloud. He's got the sickle, and he's harvesting. In other words, people are ready. It's time for you to come home. And so there's this um, agricultural imagery that's used here in this part of Revelation. So here we see Jesus is coming again. And the pioneers or the early founders of the Adventist church read this and thought, okay, well, if this is the second coming, what happens just before the second coming? And the thing that happens here in the story is that the three angels' message 
goes and gets proclaimed around the world. And so when the founders saw this, they said, hey, if that's the second coming and this is the message right before the second coming, then this is something that's incredibly, incredibly important. And this became the mission statement or the vision of the Seventh-day Adventist Church from that point in time. Here's a quote by one of the founders of the Adventist Church. Ellen White wrote in Testimonies, Volume 9, Section 19, In a special sense, Seventh-day Adventists have been set in the world as watchmen and light bearers. To them has been given, or to them has been entrusted the last warning for a perishing world. On them is shining wonderful light from the word of God. They have been given a work of the most solemn import, the proclamation of the first, second, and third angel's message. There is no other work of so great importance. They are to allow nothing else to absorb their attention. So I want to share with you how the early Adventists interpreted the three angels' message. So let's go back in more detail, starting from verse 6, and look at the first angel's message. It reads, And I saw another angel flying through the sky, carrying the eternal good news to proclaim to the people who belong on this world, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. So notice, this message is not just a message that's relevant to one people group. This is a message that would be spread to the whole world. Every corner of planet Earth is to hear this message. And the early pioneers or the early founders of Adventism took this to heart, and they sent missionaries everywhere in the late 19th century and the early 20th century and even today. And I just want to share some church statistics with you to see the application of this one verse in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. So here are just some statistics. There are over 85,000 churches worldwide, um, uh, 85,000 Seventh-day Adventist churches worldwide. There are over 70,000 companies. Now, uh, there's a difference between an established church and a company. For example, the Melbourne City Adventist Church is a company. It's not an official church. And so there are just different... Um, categories that are listed and so um basically there's over 150,000 people worshiping around uh, 150,000 bodies of people that are worshiping around the world every saturday the seventh-day adventist church has over 20 million members the church has over 300,000 employees 8,000 over 8,000 schools 198 hospitals and sanitariums over 329 clinics and dispensaries. Now, just to go back to the schools here, that is a huge number if you think about one, uh, one entity having that many um, places of education. And to put it into context, there is only one other institution that has more uh, schools around the world than the Seventh-day Adventist Church, and that's the Catholic Church. And if you think about, there are one Billion Catholic, there are over a billion Catholics, and so that puts that figure into context. Um, there are over 131 countries where ADRA is present, and ADRA um, is basically a disaster uh, disaster relief agency. Um, it's an Adventist disaster relief agency, and basically they exist to provide support and relief to people who are in need. Um, and so, for example, on Friday night. 
uh, we take we feed the homeless and give them clothes and, and take care of their needs at Queen Vic Market, and uh, that is run and organized and funded by ADRA. And so, um, those uh, excuse me, ADRA as a um, as a nonprofit organization has over 15 million beneficiary projects that are currently being um, provided. The Seventh-day Adventist Church is present in 203 out of the 230 countries that exist today. And so when the founders of Adventism read Revelation chapter 14, verse 6, and said, hey, this message needs to go to the whole world, they took it to heart, and they literally had meetings where they were trying to strategize, okay, we don't have missionaries in Australia. We don't have missionaries in Europe. We don't have missionaries in Papua New Guinea. How do we share the gospel? And they literally funneled money together and then put put those funds towards sending missionaries to these different countries. And that's why Adventism exists almost all over the world. If we go back to Revelation chapter 14, if you look at verse 7, it says, Fear God, this first angel shouted, Give glory to him, for the time has come when he will sit as judge. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all the springs of water. Now, when the early founders read this, when they saw this this, uh, call to fear God and give him glory, they saw it as a call for the world to obey Christ, for a time of judgment was coming. And so their message was always in the context of the end of time. And that becomes very important um, in the message and the theology of, of Adventism. Notice here at the end of that first angel's message, it says, worship the creator. And there's this progression that happens in the text. Worship who made heaven, earth, and the sea, and the fountains of waters. Well, there's one other place in Scripture where that progression is used, heaven, earth, sea, heaven, earth, sea. And that's found in Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 to 11. And here's how the passage reads. It's actually the Ten Commandments. This is the Fourth Commandment. It says, Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made heaven and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. But he rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So here this first angel's message says, uh, fear God and give him glory and worship him. And here's the question, how does one worship God. How does one worship the Creator? Well, in the Ten Commandments, in the Fourth Commandment, it says, well, uh, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And here's that same progression. For in six days the Lord made heaven, earth, the sea, and all that is in them. And so the founders of Adventism saw this call of worship as highlighting the Sabbath. And so they proclaimed the Sabbath to the hilltop, saying, hey, most of the world worships on Sunday. But the Bible calls us to worship the Creator, and it highlighted this importance of Sabbath. If we go back to Revelation chapter 14 and look at verse 8, here's the second angel. And the message is pretty brief. It simply says, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she made all the nations of the world drink the wine of her passionate immorality. 
the founders of the Adventist Church define Babylon as false religion. And primarily, they define Babylon as the papacy, as it was historically the universal church. It influenced all other churches. And this is the very place where they were rejected, excommunicated, where they were um, kind of shunned. They felt that all the erroneous teachings were the result of the papacy and the rejection, uh, excuse me, uh, were the result of the papacy. And their rejection from mainstream Christianity was influenced by the hundreds of years of spiritual darkness that came from the papacy. I'm going to ask you to go to Revelation chapter 17. And in Revelation chapter 17, this idea of Babylon um, is kind of further explained in Revelation. And I just want to highlight a few characteristics here. We're going to read verses 1 to 6. Revelation chapter 17, verses 1 to 6. Actually, I'm just going to highlight specific verses. Otherwise, um, yeah, I'm just going to highlight a few verses. Verses 2 and 3, it says, The kings of the world have committed adultery with her, and the people who belong to this world will have been made drunk by the wine of her immorality. So the angel took me in spirit into the wilderness where I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that had seven heads of ten horns and blasphemies against God were written all over it. So notice here that here is this picture of Babylon and the imagery that's used is this woman that's sitting on a beast. And one of the first things that are mentioned is that this beast proclaims blasphemy or heresy or things that are against God. Or profane the name of God. And as they looked around at what the other churches were teaching, they kind of said, here, here's what the Bible says, and here's what the other churches are saying, and there's inconsistency there. If you look at verse 6, the passage continues on. It says, I could see that she was drunk, drunk with the blood of God's holy people who are witnesses for Jesus. I stared at her in complete amazement. So notice Babylon is this persecuting power. Now, if you think about the 1840s, the 1840s happened right after the Inquisition. And the Inquisition basically came to a stop in the early 19th century. And so for hundreds and hundreds of years, the universal church were persecuting people who didn't believe in the same things that they did. And basically the conversation went like this. You are speaking of things that are against the church, do you repent? And basically, the Protestant reformers would respond by saying, no, we don't repent. This is from Scripture. And the response was, okay, well then, you're going to die. And many people were burned at the stake. They were thrown in prison. They were literally persecuted. And so many of the Protestant reformers believed that the papacy was Babylon for this very reason, that Scripture was not being followed and that there was enforced worship. So, Here's a quote by uh, Martin Luther, and he writes, um, this book is called A Prelude by Martin Luther on the Babylonian Captivity of the Church. This is page 536, chapter 3. Martin Luther writes, Nevertheless, since few know this glory of baptism and the blessedness of Christian liberty, and cannot know them because of the tyranny of the Pope, I for one will walk away from it all and redeem my conscience by bringing this charge against the Pope and all his papists, unless they will abolish their laws and traditions and restore to Christ's churches their liberty and have it taught among them. 
They are guilty of all the souls that perish under this miserable captivity, and the papacy is truly the kingdom of Babylon. Yes, the kingdom of the real Antichrist. And, you know, this persecution went on for hundreds of years. And so here the founders of Adventism look at the characteristics of Babylon, look at what's happening historically around them, and they're saying they're definitely, they're definitely Babylon. They're definitely the Antichrist. And so persecution was happening. The Inquisition was happening and finally came to a cease early on in the 19th century. So in verse 2, Babylon is not only a spiritual power. If you uh, go back to Revelation chapter 17, verse 2, notice it says that the kings of the world have committed adultery with her. Babylon is not only a spiritual power. It has the power to influence civil authority. And the kings of the earth would go after this uh, entity called Babylon. Now, Something really, really interesting happened in the 1850s. There was something called the Breckenridge Bill, and uh, I've just posted here Section 1. And in the United States, they actually um, discussed in Senate and in the House of Representatives enforced Sunday worship. And here's the first section. There are about six or seven sections, but it's if you're interested, you can Google it and have a read. I think the first one's pretty. The first section is pretty interested, interesting. It reads. Be enacted by the Senate and House of Representatives of the United States of America in Congress assembled that no person or corporation or the agent, servant, or employee of any person or corporation shall perform or authorize to be performed any secular work, labor, or business to the disturbance of others. Works of necessity, mercy, and humanity accepted, nor shall any person engage in any play, game or amusement or recreation to the disturbance of others on the first day of the week. How fun does that sound? <laughs> Commonly known as the Lord's Day or during any part thereof in any territory, district, vessel, or place subject to the exclusive jurisdiction of the United States, nor shall it be lawful for any person or corporation to receive pay for labor or service performed or rendered in violation of this section. So in the most powerful political power excuse me in the most significant political power um, that resides over the area that the seventh-day adventist church is birthed in basically their religious freedoms are about to be taken away and the church actually sent a representative by the name of alonzo t jones and he stood in front of congress and basically gave a bible study on the sabbath and said number one you guys aren't following scripture number two this is um this is unconstitutional like the whole premise of the United States is to provide freedom, uh, religious freedom, and this is uh, this is the exact opposite. And he actually, Congress actually called him uh, several times after that to talk about this very issue. But um, for the Adventists um, in the in the in the mid nineteenth uh, century, this was such an important important thing. And as they were reading prophecy, they they realized or. They believed we are living in prophecy, like history is being fulfilled as we speak. So we go back to Revelation chapter 14. And notice here, the message continues on. Verse 9, then a third angel followed them, shouting, anyone who worshiped the beast, worships the beast and his statue, or who accepts his mark on his forehead or on his hand, must drink of the wine of wrath, 
uh, wine of God's anger. It has been poured out full strength into God's cup of wrath, and they will be tormented with fire and burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and the Lamb. The smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever, and they will have no relief day or night. For they have worshipped the beast and his statue and have accepted the mark of his name. Verse 12. This means that God's holy people must endure persecution patiently, obeying his commands and maintaining their faith in Jesus Christ. So notice here. Here's this entity called Babylon who is trying to enforce false worship. And the result of that false worship is going to be this implementation of something called the mark of the beast. And the question is, what is the mark of the beast? And for Adventists, something that was a part of their identity was this aspect of Sabbath rest. And notice here, if you look at the, the third angel's message, those who receive the mark of the beast have no rest. It's a really important line. And then in contrast, if someone were to ask the question, well, I don't want to receive the mark of the beast. How then do I avoid this? Well, the very next verse in verse 12 says, keep the commandments of God and have faith in Jesus. And so the answer then is, well, to avoid the mark of the beast, keep the commandments. Well, to receive the mark of the beast must be then to not keep the commandments. Here's a page out of the catechism, and I'm just going to focus on section 356. Notice here, it says, are the Sabbath day and Sunday the same? And this is uh, basically uh, teaching material from uh, the papal church. It says, the Sabbath day and Sunday are not the same. The Sabbath is the seventh day of the week and is the day which was kept holy in the old law. The Sunday is the first day of the week and is the day which is kept holy in the new law. Who made the change from Saturday to Sunday? The change from Saturday to Sunday was made by the apostles, though the Bible does not clearly teach Sunday observance. Now, what's important there is when the catechism is saying the change is implemented by apostles, they're simply saying it was implemented by our church leaders. Section 357, why does the church command us to keep the Sunday holy instead of the Sabbath? The church commands us to keep the Sunday holy instead of the Sabbath because on Sunday, Christ rose from the dead, and on Sunday, he sent the Holy Ghost upon the apostles. So as you read through the material, basically the church is saying, we changed it because we have the authority to do so. And as the early Adventists were looking at what was happening in their political world, as they were looking at what was happening in the other churches, they really felt it important to highlight uh, the fact that Babylon was going to fall and that basically bad things were going to happen to those who received the mark of the beast. And that really became the fabric of um, what the Adventists were communicating to the communities around them because everybody uh, were Christian back then. And so my question then is, how do we apply this message today into modern-day Adventism? And the reason why I ask this question is because worship is no longer enforced. Like, Sunday law is not a thing. Like, nowhere in any political world, whether in America or in Australia or any Western world, are governments asking the question, should we force people to not uh to to worship on sunday and not work and not get paid that's just not a thing the other thing is that christian persecution isn't really happening like the papacy is not a persecuting power 
So then how do we take these characteristics that are given to prophetic Babylon and apply them to today as we're living as Adventists in the modern era? And I will share what I believe next time in part two. (laughs) Um, But for today, I just wanted to share the historical context of this church because I think it's important. And as you visit other Seventh-day Adventist churches, this will make those visits make a lot more sense. Um, And so I hope that in time of discussion, as we talk about a few questions, and next time as we talk about how do we take the three angels' message then and apply it today, that it'll give us um, a degree of direction and, uh, and clarity.